Hosea. And so I invite you to turn to the book of Hosea. We're not going to get that far into it. We want to introduce the book. And I think that this book in particular, uh, well, any book really that we would study in scripture in particular, uh, it's important for us to have the background and and to understand sort of the context in which it was written, those that it was written to. It helps us to understand uh, what the Lord is instructing us from those from those words that have been inspired. So, um, yeah, here we are, the book of Hosea, introduction. So this background, and, and I'm just going to point this out, uh, it's silly, but when I saw this one, after sort of diving into Hosea and kind of preparing, the background in many respects represents what, what the book is about. In many ways, the, the duplicitous, the back and forth nature of every person. We are redeemed. We are born again. We are secure in that salvation. Yet, as Paul acknowledges in Romans chapter 7, we have a struggle with our sin nature. And it's no different uh, for nations and countries. We look at the nation of Israel, the, the, the northern kingdom in particular, which is who Hosea wrote to, and we find that there is this duplicitous nature, that they are God's people, but their heart is far from him. We find uh, that being the case, and so we have this background that sort of illustrates that for whatever that's worth. It's probably not worth very much, but um, the author, the author, you're going to have to go fix that. I don't know the author. So I want to talk about the author, Hosea, what little we do know, because we don't have information. We know who he is, uh, or excuse me, who he's the son of. Uh, We find that in chapter one, verse one, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri. I'm probably saying that a little bit incorrectly, but ultimately the long and short is that's about all we know. We don't even know what tribe, with certainty, we don't even know what tribe he's from. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom, to the kingdom of Israel. That was his primary uh, outlet of, well, that was his exclusive outlet of prophetic utterance. Uh, it seems that he's from, uh, from, the, from the northern kingdom, from Israel. He's a native missionary, as it were. Uh, we also know that he had a very long ministry, and we, we realize that long ministry, uh, and we're going to get into this in, in the next few slides, but longer than most other prophets, about 60 years, which is an interesting thing because what, it illustrates to us God's long-suffering nature, and that's going to be something for us to understand as we progress this morning. His name, Hosea, it shares, a he, in Hebrew, there's a, what's called a verb root, and it shares a verb root with the name Joshua or the name Yeshua, which should be very familiar. Right? That's the Hebrew form of Jesus. So his name means salvation, it, it, deliverance. That's what it means. So we have that same uh, name throughout. Uh, when was this written? <laughs> uh, I, I realize we're moving quickly, and, and this is... Oh, there's some of it. Hold on, let me see if it goes to the next one. Nope. It's going to become important here in just a minute. That, that we. Well, I don't know if that's that important. When, when it was written, well, it's kind of complicated. Hosea, uh, most other prophets through, throughout the Old Testament give us some time frame in which they were writing. And we have that in some respects in uh, Hosea, but Hosea doesn't date the events within the prophecy. We have this general introduction in the first verse, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now remember, Judah is the southern uh, kingdom. 
So that's how he's dating this by. And then we have, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, we have one king of Israel stated, and I'm going to talk about uh, why I think that is later, because there were multiple kings of, of Israel in this time period. Uh, and those kings are the clue. So this next slide that you can't see, um, it's a picture I took out of a book. Anyway, it gives the breakdown of all these kings. So you have Jeroboam II, which is the Jeroboam that is being referenced. There it is. There you go. Jeroboam II, uh, the second, we're going to talk about Jeroboam the first in a little while because that's very important historical context for us. But you see all these kings on, on the left side, all of those kings are kings of Israel that were during the ministry of Hosea. So you have this long list of kings. He only mentions one king of Israel. And then on the other side, you have the kings of Judah that were contemporary with them as this kingdom was divided. We're going to talk about that. It's very important for us to understand. But we see the reign, the ministry and the length of the ministry of Hosea's uh, being 60 to 70 years. Uh, we have all of this laid out there. This gives us the time frame in which he ministered. And that's about it. Uh, that, that's about all we know. We don't, we don't know much about Hosea himself. We don't know uh, really any more than that. And he doesn't take the time by God's inspiration to give us any more detail about when he wrote things than what we find in the first verse. And that's fine. I think there are reasons for that. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Uh, let's talk about the prophetic predecessors, those who would precede Jonah, not Jonah, Hosea in his ministry to the northern, uh, northern kingdom. We have Elijah. He was a prophet who uh, we read about, we, we hear about the miracles, Elijah, even Elisha, we see both of them. They were both prophets that God sent to the northern kingdom. That was their outlet, primary outlet of ministry was to the northern kingdom. And we find as well that most prophets in the Old Testament were sent to Israel. They weren't sent to Judah. There were prophets that were sent to Judah. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But most of them were sent to Israel, and there's a reason for that. And that reason becomes key to our understanding the book of Hosea. So we're going to spend some time talking about that here in a moment. The other thing that's important for us to understand is the contemporaries, those who uh, were with, that ministered at the same time as Hosea. We tend to think about biblical history linearly. And in many respects, it is linear. But if you have ever read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to read First and Second Kings, and then you're going to read First and Second Chronicles, and you're going to say, didn't I just read this? Because it's the same time period. It's the same events. It's the same things being discussed. And when we look at the prophets, we tend to think about them in the same linear fashion. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap, and we need to understand that. So the contemporaries of Hosea are first Jonah. Jonah was a contemporary of Hosea. Turn with me to 2 Kings. Hold your place in Hosea. 2 Kings chapter 14. Second Kings chapter 14. And I want to look at verse 23. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, just pause there for a moment. That sounds very familiar to the guy that we're talking about in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. King Jeroboam, it's the same king. Okay, so in his time period, uh, Judah, the Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. I might have the wrong reference here. 
Who is surprised? Nobody who's been here before. <laughs> Somewhere I'll have the right reference. Uh, but here's the thing. We have a link in scripture. I'll have to come back next week with that reference for you. I apologize. Where Jonah is sent to Jeroboam, this same king. So there, there is, they are contemporaries. They are ministering in the lifespan of the same king of Israel. We're going to come back to this particular reference here. Here's the thing I want you to understand, though. Think about, think about Jonah. This was interesting when we, when we put this together. Oh, it's 25. Is it 25? Oh, yeah. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath Heifer. Thank you, Marissa. Saw Marissa telling. <laughs> it was, we were so close. Okay, so here's Jonah. He's a contemporary. He's ministering at the same time as Hosea. Where did God send Jonah? When we go read the book of Jonah, where was he sent? He was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of what empire, what country, what people group? Now, this you're going to get a gold star for this. Nobody's keeping track. They don't mean anything, but you can have one anyway. Who knows? The Assyrians. Did you know? Were you saying? Oh, sorry, I was looking here and not back there. Okay, the Assyrians. Who does God use to judge the nation of Israel, the northern tribe? They go into exile in Assyria. Judah, when we read about this, we studied this when we went through Daniel. Judah goes into exile in Babylon in a couple hundred years. But the northern tribe was in exile much earlier. And they do so in Assyria. Interesting. That same nation that God raised up, that God sent a prophet to that, that repented of their sin, and God stayed his judgment, and Jonah stamped his foot in the dirt about it and kind of threw a little fit. Those were the people that God was using to judge Israel, to correct them. Now, we also have Amos being a contemporary of, I don't know, Amos is a contemporary uh, of Hosea. He ministers at the same time, also to the northern tribes. Isaiah happens at the same time as Hosea, but Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. He's sent to the southern tribe. Same with Micah. Micah is a prophet to Judah, but he's contemporary. It's all happening at the same time. Hosea is the first of what we call the minor prophets. Does anybody know why we call them the minor prophets? It's probably because it's less important, right? It's not. They, they call them the minor prophets because they're small. You compare, for example, Isaiah has 66 chapters. Hosea has 14. Jonah has four. The only reason they call them minor prophets is because of their size. They're small. It doesn't mean that it's less important. It doesn't mean that it was written during a time period that was less significant in the history of Israel. It just means they were smaller books. And that's all it means. I don't know why Daniel gets to be one of the major prophets. He has fewer chapters than Hosea. But he probably has more words. Some of the chapters in Hosea we're going to find are short. The main theme, let's talk about the main theme of Hosea. There's really three things, and they're all related. Uh, the first uh, theme is the rejection of God by his people. The rejection of God by his people. And I call it rejection because it isn't simply a putting aside or a syncretism where they're taking uh, Judaism, worship of God, and they're putting it together with other things, it's really a replacement, a rejection. And as we get into the book of Hosea and we look at the terms that God uses to describe this, he talks about it in terms of adultery. 
a rejection and a leaving and pursuing of something else. So the rejection of God by his people is the first. Next, secondly, we have God's righteous, merciful, and loving response. God responds to the rejection of his people, and he does so righteously. Right? We can't say that anything that God does is unrighteous or unholy or wrong. So he responds rightly to the rejection of his people. He also does so mercifully. How long, we're going to see if anybody's listening, how long did Hosea minister? 60 years. Was he the first prophet sent to Israel? No. So there's been this long period of time where God is trying to woo his people back. He's trying to correct them and say, listen, you're, you're going the wrong way. You're doing the wrong things. And there's going to be problems as a result. We're going to talk about that further. So God's righteous and merciful response and loving response. We're going to come back to that loving thought here in just a moment. The third theme, so the rejection of God by his people. Number two, God's righteous, merciful, and loving response. And third, the future restoration of Israel. The future restoration of Israel. When the nation of Israel came out of Babylon and returned back to Jerusalem, there was no longer two kingdoms. There's only one kingdom at that point. The nation of Israel. There's a restoration of Israel. And in addition to that, as we're going to find as we study through Hosea, it's not simply the bringing back and them establishing a new uh, kingdom in Jerusalem as, as the capital. It's, it's a spiritual restoration of Israel. And there's much of that that is yet to come, that is still prophetic. Because Israel doesn't accept Christ as their Messiah. In general terms, that's where they stand. And so there's this future restoration of Israel. Although the theme of judgment for apostasy or the rejection of, of God runs throughout the book, all throughout Hosea, it is clearly interwoven by the golden thread of mercy and love. There are those, and I think it is rightly said, that talk about Hosea and they call it the gospel of Hosea. Because throughout this book, throughout this small prophetic book, we find Hosea and the, this entire discussion of redemption. Right? We, we understand that all the way back in Genesis, we have the fall of mankind, and we have the promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15, and the rest of the Bible is God fulfilling his promise of redemption and ultimate restoration. So this is a gospel-themed book. This is a book that is for you and I today. Now, the stylings of Hosea, the stylings of Hosea. So a new term for me, a new thing for me that I've really liked is the, is the statement, it's in your teeth. Right? If it's in your teeth, it's right here. It's, it's a, you know, when, when I used to ride a motorcycle, the bugs were in your teeth. They were right there in your face. Right? When something is in your teeth, it's right there in your face. It's confronting you at a very personal level. And Hosea is in your teeth. That's the style that it is written in. It, God desired clarity for his people. It's a very blunt book. And, and in addition to that, stylistically, it's not really a smooth book. There isn't a lot of, as we read through and we studied through Daniel, for example, we have this progression and we have these cues, even within the languages that it was written in, of who the audience was and, and what it was pertaining to and all of those things. We don't find any of that in Hosea. It's kind of like Proverbs in the sense that each section can stand alone. And so there are those who say that it's somewhat disjointed as a book. I'm going to suggest that we're going to find it is not disjointed whatsoever, that it is completely consistent. But it's only completely consistent if we understand it 
in the greater context of Scripture and God's redemptive purpose. And we look at it in that light, it is completely consistent. But God inspired Hosea to pen these words in a very blunt way. He desired clarity for his people. When you and I see our children about you, we've all been here. Maybe not this exact circumstance, but in something similar. You walk in the room and you see the key in the kid's hand. I, I don't know how many times I did this. You'd think I would have learned the first time. You see the key in the kid's hand and they're at the outlet and they're about to jam the key into the outlet. And you don't, well, let me reason with you and I'll give you a few more warnings. And no, 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 you yell, stop, danger, don't do that. Put the key, you're blunt. And that's exactly what God is doing here in the book of Hosea. There has been hundreds of years of warning. This is God's, in many respects, last ditch effort. Put the key down on the floor. Judgment is coming. This, that's why it's blunt. That's why stylistically, this is the way God has inspired him to write it. And we have to realize, we have to understand it correctly, that God in doing that is showing love and mercy to his people. Just as he would with you and I. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read verse 9. You can hold your place in Hebrews 12. We're going to be back here just a, a little while, but he, pretty soon you're going to have all your fingers to read it. But you got one in Hosea, one in Hebrews, and we'll, we'll get there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we did give them reverence. Right? God has put you in the family that you're in, He is ordained sovereignly, providentially, that you would have the parents that you have, and they corrected us. They taught us. They chastened us. They, they, they brought about within us whatever they could. And ultimately, for you and I as, as parents who are Christians, the goal, the biggest goal that we might have is for our children to know the Lord, to walk in faithfulness. Okay, so here we have our fathers, we have fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. We showed them due honor and respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now, we could read elsewhere in this same chapter in the book of Hebrews that exhorts you and I and says, listen, if you are experiencing the chastening of the Lord, it's because you are his child. And because he loves you. So God being blunt, being very frank, being extremely direct with his people through Hosea is an example of his love and mercy. He wants clarity for them. He wants them to understand fully. And he goes to the great extent of telling Hosea who he should marry and what to name his children. We're going to get into that next week. And it's very telling. It sets the stage for the rest of the book. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. As I said, we've had several prophets that have gone before and, and prophesied of God's coming judgment as a result of their adulterous nature, the, the northern tribes. Uh, and here's Hosea doing it yet again. As we read in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We have the same warning, but we have to realize that this is a warning that God has established for all of his people when he instituted the covenant with them. So in Deuteronomy, what we find is the retelling, that's what the word Deuteronomy means, a retelling of the law. We have this generation that didn't trust the Lord, right? The 12 spies went in and they spied out the land and they came back. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, all of the things that you're complaining about, all of those woes, the giants, all of that, it exists. 
But their conclusion was, we trust the Lord, and it doesn't matter if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's go in and take the land. The other 10 spies, they couldn't see past the giants. They couldn't see past the hardships and the things that they were going to have to give up or sacrifice. Sure, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They didn't trust the Lord. They were unwilling to walk by faith. And ultimately, we have the, the nation of Israel, that people who had been led out of Egypt, miraculously so. But here is the, one of the greatest world powers, and you're the slave population of that world power, and you have these plagues, these things that, that God does, these miraculous signs. He leads you out by pillar of fire uh, at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. He parts the Red Sea. Is anything too hard for God? It would be my question, and yet I'm going to walk by what I can see. We're just going to get crushed. And that was the choice that they made. So that entire generation, God says that entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb and Moses at that time, Moses, for other reasons, couldn't go into the promised land. They, had, they passed away. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation had passed. And so now we have this retelling of the law. Moses is here in Deuteronomy with those who get to go into the land. Restating what God has told. Listen, when we come into this land, this is what it's going to be like. And so when we get into this, and this we're going to read a long section here, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 14 through 29, because there's nothing new under the sun. There was no surprise to any of these people that this was coming if they rejected God. Deuteronomy 4, let's begin in verse 14, and stick with me. I know it's long. They say you're not supposed to read long portions of Scripture, but you know what? The Word of God is powerful and active, dividing this time. It's going to do the work that I can't do. So just stick with me. Verse 14, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land, whither you go over to possess it. Take you therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. I want to just pause there for a moment, that graven image. When Moses is up on, the, on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, what did the people make down in, they took the gold earrings, and what did they make? What Golden calf. Remember that. They made a golden calf. God's telling them, don't make any images, right? What's the first and the second commandment? God, I have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Okay, God is re reiterating what he's already commanded them. Okay, Don't do this. Don't corrupt yourselves. Don't make any graven images. Verse 17, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish as in the waters beneath the earth. And lest you lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God has divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Now just want to pause there for a second. God has given his creation, right? Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 tells us that the firmament declares handiwork. There are things there that glorify God and would instruct us of his existence and even of his eternal power in God. But what happens is we fall subject to worshiping that. Because if I'm worshiping dirt, I'm not condemned of my sin. It's a long and short of it. And I'm just going to throw John chapter 3 out there for your personal study. You guys all know what I mean. Verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swear that I should not go over Jordan and that I should not go in unto the, that good land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Right, so Moses was going to be able to go into the promised land, but he got angry and he struck the rock. He didn't 
There's nothing new under the sun. He didn't do what God said. Just like Adam didn't do what God said. So he doesn't get to go in. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan, but you shall go over and possess the good land. Verse 23. Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God has forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. So twice they've been reminded, don't make any images, don't make any grave, no idols. Verse 25, but when thou shalt beget children and children's children, you shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourself and make a graven image or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. Moses understands that this is going to happen. And God, in his mercy towards his people, says, listen, I understand that you have a sin nature. This is going to happen, but let me tell you what will happen as a result of that. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land where until you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. When you do fall to idolatry, when you choose to worship things beside me, when you choose Israel to reject me, you'll be removed from the land that you've been promised to inherit. That is the consequence. That is what's going to happen to you. That's exactly what we find happening. We studied through Daniel. Babylon came in. They were removed from the land. Israel, the northern ten tribes of Syria comes in. They're removed from the land. He continues on. We're nearly done. Verse 27, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there you shall serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But, but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thine heart and with all thy soul. And this is what happens. This is where we find the nation of Israel begin to seek the Lord in their exile, in their separation from God. And ultimately, we find them restored to the land. This, this is a summary of Hosea. You've fallen to idolatry. You've rejected me. You, you've committed adultery. You're going to be removed from the land. But this redemptive thread, this golden thread of the gospel throughout, you will be restored when you seek me. I talked about the historical context, and it's really important for us to understand the historical context. There's a reason that there's only one king uh, referenced in Israel. I want to go all the way back to Solomon, because that's where the division of the kingdom begins. It doesn't happen under his reign, but that's where it begins. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. And I want to read verses 3 through 9 this morning. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. So here we've, Solomon has built a temple that David made all the preparations for. Uh, Solomon prays that God would come and inhabit that house, and, and God responds to that. And verse 4, he says, If thou wilt walk before me as David thy father. What, would, what did God say about David's heart? He's a man after my own heart. Right? So, so he has an undivided heart. He serves the Lord completely. Now, David had his ups and downs. 
but he loved the Lord and he followed him. He walked in faith. He trusted God completely and holy. He had an undivided heart and respect to God. So Solomon, if you will walk before me as David thy father, walk in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever. As I promised, they're saying, there shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. Right? So, so there's, here's the blessing that comes through obedience. Verse 6, but if you shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, here's the curse that will result. Then I will cut off Israel from off the land, from out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight. And Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And at this house, which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, what has the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God and brought forth their fathers, uh, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have taken hold upon other gods and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore, has the Lord brought upon them all this evil? It's interesting to me that, that, that God is simply restating the, the promise that he'd made before. If you follow me, I'll be with you. If you reject me, you're going to be taken from the land. But ultimately, the, the, thing that, the second thing that, that we need to notice is that even in the midst of God's people being removed from the land, suffering the, the cursing, the, the judgment that God promised them, God is glorified. He is recognized by those who were outside of the nation of Israel as a powerful God. That he is able to remove them, that he is the one who is acknowledged as raising up these nations. And we see this as we study through the book of Daniel. We saw that acknowledgement. We saw it in Nebuchadnezzar. Even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God's glory is established. Turn with me a few pages into 1 Kings chapter 11. We're not going to read, I uh, had 11, 1 through 13. We're not going to read all of that, but this is what happened. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord sent unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come into you. Right, Solomon, you're not supposed to marry any of those people. What is he doing? And he had 700 wives, verse 3, princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of his father, David. And he went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon falls to idolatry. His heart is divided. He does that thing which God said, thou shalt not do. This is why the kingdom ends up being divided. Jump with me to verse 11 in 1 Kings chapter 11. God is angry with Solomon. And he says this, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Solomon, you're not going to be the king any longer. Enter Jeroboam, Jeroboam the first. He's actually not the first and it's not the second. It's Jeroboam one and Jeroboam two because they're not related. Okay. Jeroboam one. Jump down to verse 34. Now Jeroboam, uh, <clears throat> Jeroboam is a tradesman. 
And Solomon notices Jeroboam and he, and he has, uh, Jeroboam is really good at what he does. And so Solomon takes notice and he actually puts him in charge of the tribe of Joseph. And I mean, they're, they're the guys doing the work. And he puts Jeroboam in charge. So Jeroboam sort of has this grassroots movement amongst the people. Remember when David uh, was older and Absalom had this grassroots movement and people started to follow Absalom and what was he doing? He was just out there in the streets with the people. That's what's happening here. This is the same kind of thing that's happening. Now, this is all by proclamation of the Lord. If you read through this, we find that a prophet, uh, his name escapes me, starts with an A. It's here in this chapter. Comes to Jeroboam and says, listen, he takes his garment and he rips it into 12 pieces. He says, you take 10. You're going to take 10 of these tribes. Jeroboam, you're going to be the king. Let's begin here in verse 34. How be it, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. Okay, this is the prophet speaking to Jeroboam, and he's explaining this is what's going to happen. But we're not going to take everything out of his hand. Why? Because I made a promise to David. But I will make him prince all the days of his life for David, my servant's sake, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee, even ten tribes. Okay, so he's going he's gonna to be the king of these ten tribes. Ultimately, I'll give you the, the short synopsis here. Solomon gets word of this. Jeroboam has to flee to Egypt. And he stays in Egypt until Solomon dies. And then we pick up with Rehoboam. That's Solomon's son. And you remember, right, that the people have been heavily taxed to provide for this construction of the temple. And they're, they're not happy about it. So they make, they file a grievance as it were. And we have wise counsel given to Rehoboam. <laughs> Listen, the work's done, relieve the taxes. Rehoboam goes to his other buddies, you know, his school chums, and he gets some bad advice. They're like, no, <laughs> we want to live in the lap of luxury. This is, so what you're going to tell them is, listen, you thought Solomon's reign was bad. It's going to get worse. That's what Rehoboam does. That's what he tells the people. Yeah, here you have Jeroboam, this grassroots guy, who everybody knows and everybody likes. And 10 of those tribes follow him, according to the word of the Lord. Turn through 1 Kings chapter 12. This is where we pick it up. This is where, what, where this happens, uh, beginning in verse 15. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord. Right? This is God's decree. This is what he said was going to happen, that he might perform his saying. And the Lord spake, and spake by Ahijah the Shilonite, that's the prophet, the Shilonite, unto Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Right, we're, we're out of here. We're looking for somebody else. And they say, we're going to follow you, Jeroboam. That's what happened. The division of the kingdom starts with Solomon. And it begins with his idolatry. The division of the kingdom is the penalty for Solomon's idolatry. Now, Jump to verse 25, 1 Kings chapter 12. Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Right? He's like, listen, we have a problem here. Because we built this temple, and that's where we're supposed to go and worship. In fact, God commanded that wherever he chose to put his name, that the men, all the men had to go three times a year. And so Jeroboam says, listen, we're going to lose this kingdom that we just got. If this people, verse 27, if this people go up to sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of his, this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
Jeroboam says, listen, we can't have them turning back to the Lord. That's not going to work out well for me. Wherefore, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? I told you to remember that what happened on Sinai, and here it is, two calves of gold. And he said to them, it is too much for you to way too far, way too hard. Takes days to get over there. Behold thy gods. And can you imagine he holds up these golden calves? Behold your gods. Here we are. And the nation of Israel has been told over and over again since Abraham, listen, don't have any other gods before me. This is it. Don't worship the creation. Don't worship anything made by man's hands. O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he ascribes to these idols the works of God. And he set the one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And these things became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places. We were talking about high places, right? These are pagan temples. This is places of worship, places of idolatry. When we read about groves and those kinds of things, I mean, they mutilated trees as part of their worship, and that's what, they were, that, that's what was happening. This is what's going on. This was sin for the people. And he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel sacrifice unto the calves that he had made. And he, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, which he had devised of his own heart. And offered a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. And as the, na as the leaders, so goes the nation. Right? You have a, a nation here, a kingdom, that is based upon and held together by its idolatry. Why did most of the prophets in the Old Testament go to Israel? Because this was where the biggest problem was. Now, it's not exclusive. We get into Isaiah, right? In the first chapter of Isaiah, God, by that prophet, says to Judah, you're just going through the motions. You might be offering the sacrifices in the right places, but your heart is not in it. But this kingdom is specifically built on idolatry. It is held together by that idolatry. This is a historical context. This is, and we have hundreds of years of this being ingrained within these people. They worship these calves for all of that time. Now, as we get into Hosea, right, there's only one, only one king mentioned. And what is his name? Jeroboam. Jeroboam. And as we read, we, well, I tried to read it earlier in 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings 14, if you want to put it in your notes, verses 23 through 24. Because this is where, this is where the connection between the founding, Jeroboam 1 and Jeroboam 2, is made. Not only is it the connection between those two names, but it's the connection of the heart of the people. This is why Hosea was sent. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that's Jeroboam 1, who made Israel to sin. So here's Jeroboam running right down the same path of idolatry. That's where he's at. And as the leaders are, so is the nation. And here, and here it is. This is what has been happening in Israel since its beginning. And God has been warning them and warning them and warning them, you're going to be removed from the land. There is 
time coming where I cannot extend mercy any longer. As we read in second lack concerning his promises, different context, but same principle. He's going to deliver on that promise, but he's long suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. We look at this redemptive purpose, this mercy and love that God has shown his people for generations now, as they have been adulterous, that they have rejected him over and over and over. You remember that Jesus, when he talked about Israel, Israel, how often would I have gathered you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under my wings? And he talks about, I sent to you prophets and you killed those prophets. You would not listen. This is Israel. This is the heart of Israel. This is where they, they are. It highlights the spiritual state of Israel since its beginning. Now, I want to close this morning by talking about some modern applicability. Some modern applicability. We've spent the last several weeks uh, going through some topical style sermons. And I'm more and more convinced that as we look at those things and those things that we've studied, that there is a representation in general, generally speaking, of the church, of the state of the church. And I'm convinced more and more that here is Hosea written to the people of God. Therefore, you and I, as believers, the people of God, is also written to you, to us. The church, while we haven't replaced Israel, they're his covenant people, right? We are his children and have been grafted in and become part of his people. The church needs to understand Hosea, this book, what it's about, what he's addressing in it, that adultery, that, that rejection of our creator. And what is the result of that? So we face the same temptation that Adam fell, fell to, and that's ultimately where I'm not going to keep the word of God. I'm not going to listen to what he said. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, God takes Adam, puts him in the middle of the, puts him in the garden. And he says, listen, Adam, you can eat of everything in this garden except for the one tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. When you do, you will die. Paraphrase. Second, excuse me, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. What happens? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the serpent that sneaks in. He's more subtle than any other beast right here. <laughs> and, he, and he comes in and he tempts Adam and Eve and he causes them to doubt the goodness of God. Did God really say? Yes, God really said. And he meant what he said. But now in addition to that, they added, you know, you don't eat it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. I mean, there's this building up, this addition to the word of God. But ultimately, it boils down to, I don't trust God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Choosing to walk by faith rather than walk by sight. Sure, it looked good. They, they saw that it was good for food, that it was good to make one wise, all of the things. They witnessed all of that. They chose to trust what they could see, taste, touch, and feel, and observe over what God had said. And in many respects, this is where the church exists today. So some lessons. Like Israel, the church draws near with their mouth, but their heart is corrupted by idolatry. We talked about some modern manifestations of idols within the church. One of those being society. You know, we're going to let society be our golden calf. It gets to tell us what is right, what is wrong. We're going to hold that up as the gold standard. Yet God has very clearly said, that's sin. You want to call that marriage, but it isn't marriage. I've already defined what that is. It's clear, cut, and dry. Turn with me to, back to Hosea. Let's read the first three verses. This is as far as we're going to get in this book this morning. Hosea chapter 1. We've already read verse 1, but let's start with it again. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, 
in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, I'm sure that was wrong, which conceived and bare him a son. And we're going to unpack some, this, this a little bit more because I think that there is more to be had in verse 2. But Israel draws near with their mouth. We are the people of God. He led us from Egypt, so on and so forth. Yet we've put these idols out there. Whatever it may be. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right into the New Testament. This is, this is, this is our territory, right? <laughs> Listen, the Old Testament is our territory too. But here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's begin in, uh, well, we could really begin in verse 1, but I don't want to read the entirety of it. Let's begin in verse 6. So we have these, uh, this discussion about Moses, uh, and they're passing through the sea, eating the spiritual meat, that manna, uh, eating, drinking from the spiritual rock, that rock that followed them, which was Christ. This is what we read there in verse uh, 4. Uh, it says, but many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that's a reference back to their faithlessness. We pick up here in verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be you idolaters. As were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Verse 11. Now all of these things happened unto them for in samples, and that word simply means examples. This happened. You've heard me talk about Israel being God's example people, and they are. They're his covenant people, but for you and I as believers, they are his example people. And this is where we take that from. Now, all of these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Flee from the rejection of God to the true and living God. Like Israel, the church draws near with their mouth, but their heart is corrupted by idolatry. But we have to realize that Hosea is written to us. Second, we should expect God to deal with us in the same blunt yet merciful way that he dealt with Israel. And I'm just going to throw this out there that if God took the time over the lifespan, the ministry, the 60 years of Hosea's ministry, plus the generations and the several prophets that he sent beforehand, and then we get to Hosea, and he's now speaking very bluntly, very directly. If God is speaking with you and I bluntly, very directly, we should really pay attention. We kick the can too far down the road. Pay attention. Okay? But we should expect that God would deal with us in the same blunt yet merciful way. Turn with me to Romans 15. Romans 15. In verse 4, 
whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. So we look at all this, everything that was written in the Old Testament, everything that has come before Romans 15, it's written for our instruction, for our learning. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, we have this given to us for our instruction. Now we look at it and we see this central theme, this central thread of the gospel of God's redemptive purpose, and that is correct. But that should beg of us the question, why do we need redemption? Right? We talk about the full context of the gospel. We spend a lot of time talking about the full context of the gospel. There's no need for any of that if there isn't a fall. It starts with sin. And as God has declared, there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where we're at. This, so, so we have this understanding of sinfulness. We have the understanding that... <laughs> You're going to reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6, God has not mocked whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. We sow to the Spirit, we're going to reap life everlasting. It's what the Bible tells us. And so here we have this idea that all this was written beforehand, all of the stuff in the Old Testament, the blessings, the, the promises of redemption, the promises of judgment for rejection. For adultery. Now, you and I, listen, I want to make this very clear. We're not talking about loss of salvation. God isn't saying, listen, I'm done with you, and I'm going to cut you off, and I'm, and I'm finished, right? We see that very thing contradicted in the book of Hosea. He doesn't reject his people as they, as they have rejected him, but he corrects them. He brings them back to himself. Turn with me to Hebrews 12 again. I told you, keep a finger there. Hebrews chapter 12 again. When God begins to see his people stray, he sends, sends unto them those that would correct them, would give him his word, the prophets, those that would speak and say, listen, you need to be reminded of all that God has said. And that's what we find Moses doing in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's what we find Hosea doing here very directly, excuse me, very directly throughout that book. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. So two things. Number one, when, when we sense the corrective nature of God, we don't despise it. We need to count that as a blessing and an example of his mercy and love towards us. And we don't faint when we're rebuked of him. We've all witnessed fainting at rebuke, right? A little kid. You know, they put all the gum and the candy and the stuff right there by the register. It's on purpose. You've been baited in, children. <laughs> and we've all seen it, right? No, you can't have that candy bar. And they fall to the ground, kicking and screaming. They fainted at the rebuke, right? That, that is what's happening. Woe is me, Lord, this is so hard. Listen, you're going to reap what you sow. And I love you enough. We're going to read about that here in just a moment. I love you enough to not leave you right there. God promised us in Romans chapter 8. He said, listen, my predetermined destiny for you as believers is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. I can't leave you there. That is my plan for you to make you more like Jesus. You are my witnesses. You are the lights in the world. The more you look like Christ, the clearer the witness is. And so I'm going to have to change your heart immediately. I'm going to replace it, but then we're going to have to change other things. You're going to be molded. It's called sanctification. He continues on here. Verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. It is God's example of mercy to you and I. We read the book of Proverbs that if we spare the rod, we spoil the child. We are God's children. He will correct us as necessary. Now, unlike me, it's going to be perfect correction, perfectly applied to bring about the things that it needs to bring about. 
Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. There it is. We should expect God to deal with us in the same blunt, very clear, direct, yet merciful way. I was speaking with Mike Riddle last night. We talked about this very thing. We talked about, we like to talk about the blessings of God, and we remove from that description of blessing some of the hard things that we may endure. If God is sovereign, if God is providential, then he's sovereign and he's providential. And those things that we may experience that are hard, that are less than desirable, are ultimately being redeemed for our best. It is his blessing, just as his correction would be his blessing. Put it in the right category. Take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. Jesus, the Bible tells us, Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. We should expect God to deal with us in the same way. Seems like there was a third one, but that's the end of my notes. So I, I know there was three, but I don't know what the third one was. I apologize. <laughs> Let's pray this morning. Father, we give you thanks and we rejoice at your goodness to us. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, the mercy, the love that you've shown us while we were yet sinners, Christ dying for us. Lord, and I pray that we here who hear this as we study through the book of Hosea in the next several weeks to come, that as we do so, Lord, we clearly see that redemptive thread, that we might not lose hope. But in addition to that, Lord, that you by your spirit would convict us of the things that we may have placed on pedestals, the idolatry that we may hold. And God, may it be for us as a church, as a group, a fellowship of believers, Lord, may it be a corrective force for us in general, together. Lord, what things have we together held up? By your grace, Lord, soften our hearts so we may be receptive to the correction that you extend towards us. Help us, Lord, by your grace to count it as blessing, because it brings about in us, as your word says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And Lord, as we do so, may we be those clear witnesses to the world around us. Lord, you have prepared the hearts, you have ordained the appointments and those things, those people that we would talk to. And Lord, we just pray even now for those encounters that you would be honored, that the, the gospel would be clearly articulated. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, we commit this time of fellowship into your hands, asking that you would be honored. Lord, that we would be those who would provoke unto love and good works one another, as your word says. We ask this now, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.